Hey, Disney fans, looking for the latest Disney news and interviews with some of Disney's biggest stars? Have we got the podcast for you. Welcome to D23 Inside Disney. I'm Sherry from Oh My Disney. I'm Tony from Good Morning America. And I'm Jeffrey from D23. And together we're taking you Inside Disney. Hello. 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 Uh, we've got to harmonize that hello. One of these weeks. It's Me gonna too. Be hello, 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 hello. <laughs> we'll be the dapper inside Disney's. Yes. <laughs> I love it. All right. So what have you guys been up to since we were last together in our magical pod? Well, I got a sneak peek at the first episode of Turning the Tables on Disney Plus with my gal pal, Robin Roberts. Ooh. Nice. First episode is with Jamie Lee Curtis, Billie Jean King, and Mickey Guyton. It is so good. You know, on a normal day, I walk past Robin in the studio and I like just feel inspired, but watching just the first episode <laughs> of this series is just gave me all the feels. So I can't wait for everyone to see it. Oh, I love that. Oh, Sherry. I watched the third episode of Monsters at Work on Disney+. Plus. I cannot get enough of that show. I'm so sad it didn't all drop at once because now I have to wait <laughs> weekly to watch new episodes. Oh, you know what? It's so Anticipation. Funny. It's it's all about, you know, stretching out the magic. That's true. Survivor on Hulu really spoiled me because I can just sit there for hours watching <laughs> episode after episode. <laughs> now it. I know what it's like to have to wait. Ugh. Oh my gosh. Oh my god. It, it totally paid off. It was such a good episode. Could use more Fritz. He's my favorite character. <laughs> That's Henry Winkler. Yes. Yes. Jeffrey, what have you been up to? I went and I saw Disney legend Christina Aguilera in concert <gasps> at the Hollywood Bowl. Yes. So good. She was amazing. She was amazing. Yeah. Her legend. usual. Legend. Oh. And just nice to be back at a, you know, a venue and, and the Hollywood Bowl is just so beautiful. I was going to so say Hollywood Bowl mm. things are back. That's so fun. The bowl is back. My next one is seeing oh. our Emmy nominee, Cynthia Erivo for Genius <gasps> Erivo. That I'll be is going to be her. good. Yeah. Yes. Cool. You know me. I'm finding, I like, I find Disney connections to everything. I've got John Williams. He's going <laughs> to certainly be sure be playing a bunch of stuff. I'm seeing Black Panther in concert. My entire schedule is essentially somehow Disney inspired. Wow. One degree of Disney. Somehow, huh? Hmm. Somehow, <laughs> just by fate. All right, Sherry, we got a little bit of news today before we get to our pal who's battling with Yvette Nicole Brown to be our fourth unofficial host, <laughs> the fabulous Becky Klein. I got to tell you, if you are a Disney fan of anything, the parks, our movies, our shows, I learned stuff. And the way Becky tells the story of, of not only these incredible exhibits that they've put together, but the process of finding these incredible objects, restoring them, mm -hmm. keeping them safe, displaying so them. And, and some uh, news from a galaxy far, far away that she talked about. So stick around for that. But uh, Sherry, what other news we got? Yes. Okay. Well, I've got some wild news to kick things off. A Ooh. baby hippo and a baby gorilla Aww. almost shared a birthday at Animal Kingdom. Aww. Yes. They welcomed the arrival of a healthy Nile hippopotamus calf and just one day later, the birth of a healthy Western lowland gorilla. Um, did you wait? Cute. Did you say a Nile hippopotamus? Because <laughs> if you don't believe me, you're in the Amazon. Yep, Keep going. Yeah, sorry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Someone had to say it. Sorry, sorry, sorry. No, it's uh, no need to apologize for that. You know, I love that. 
there was a very cute video of both baby animals on the Disney Parks blog right now. Check it out. It is worth mm. 57 seconds of your time. So good. So Gorilla Mom Azizi, she introduced the baby to the entire family troupe and had the chance to bond on stage at the Gorilla Falls Exploration Trail. Very cute. And the hippopotamus calf made its debut Monday in the Safi River on Kilimanjaro Safari, joining nine other hippos in the hippo family, which wow. I just learned is called a bloat. I mean, <laughs> I did not fitting. know that. The shoe fits. The shoe yeah. fits. <laughs> In the meantime, I don't believe either baby has been named yet. So I'd like to once again throw my name in the ring specifically for the hippo. I, I think Stoney. I think you, Sherry Shoney. and Tony. Stoney. No, Stoney. Oh, Shoney. I kind of like Stoney, though. I've never heard of a Stoney. It seems like something my mother would say, darling, give me a Stoney from the, <laughs> from the deli around the corner. Maybe Teffrey. I like Teffrey. Teffrey. <laughs> But if, if Stoney had a name, it would be probably after a Disney park snack, though, for sure. Yeah, good yeah. point. <laughs> yep. yep. All right. Other Disney World news. The first of the Disney Fab 50 sculptures has been revealed. I think everyone knows that they're creating these 50 amazing sculptures that are going to be around yes. the, uh, the resort in celebration of the 50th anniversary. Appropriately, the first sculpture, Mickey Mouse, unveiled by our pal brett <gasps> iwin the official voice of mickey mouse Ooh. let's see what i did there anyway wow that was really good That's very good oh, brett so watch just... your back <laughs> <laughs> you're being nice so the mickey and Minnie mouse sculptures they are dedicated to the cast members of the past present and future and we know that our parks are nothing without the incredible cast members who make that experience come to life i have a feeling our friends uh at d23 may be unveiling one i don't know i'm not i'm just saying <gasps> I'm, it's allegedly Sting. Allegedly. Tony, <laughs> what else is going on? Well, I have a primetime schedule alert. Buckle <laughs> up, <laughs> you guys. <laughs> um, ABC Network just revealed its upcoming 2021-2022 programming slate, and it is hot, y'all. So some of your favorites mm -hmm. are back. Check your local listings for new days and times, but some notable shows that are returning are Shark Tank, The Bachelorette, The Connors, Grey's Anatomy, the series premiere of The Wonder Years, which I have been counting down to. Mm. And yeah. I'm so excited to see all of my friends, humble brag, back on Dancing with the Stars, which kicks off on September 20th, which kicks off the new slate of returning and debuting shows on ABC. I know that you know there were too many to count, but I do want to add in a special October 19th shout out for Queens with Brandy yes. and Ooh. an amazing cast. But Brandy, who is, of course, the voice of the ultimate princess celebration with her song starting now. So very excited, Brandy. Ah. Brandy's back. Awesome. Well, in Disney Plus news, Short Circuit Season 2 is coming. Woohoo! Woo Short Circuit provides an opportunity for anyone at Walt Disney Animation Studios to pitch their own short film. Super cool. Back for Season 2 on August 4th with an all-new collection of five different shorts that take the idea of experimentation to the next level. Starting with Dinosaur Barbarian. Ooh. As we all know, Battling Evil is all in a day's work for Dinosaur Barbarian, but what about taking out the trash? Sometimes even a superhero needs to clean up his act. That's relatable on the Dinosaur Barbarian, taking out the trash part. <laughs> yeah, very true. Do you consider yourself a barbarian, a dinosaur, or just do you take out the trash? A superhero who takes out the trash, occasionally. Ah. Oh, nice. I see. 
And the other shorts coming up are Going Home, Crosswalk, Songs to Sing in the Dark, and Number Two to Kettering. I cannot wait for all of these. Yay. Well, in trailer news, he's the face you never see, as he says. The official trailer is out for the Disney Plus original documentary film, Stuntman, which follows legendary stuntman Eddie Braun as he attempts one of the most dangerous stunts in history. Now, growing up, one of his idols was Evil Knievel, and now he's completing a stunt that his childhood hero never finished. So that's the premise mm. of the documentary film. Mm. The film is executive produced by Kelly Knievel and, get this point, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Familiar oh, face. Wow. And this documentary film starts streaming on Disney Plus Friday, July 23rd. Nice. Well, you know what time it is. Lunchtime? Ooh. <laughs> I wish. I'm feeling a little peckish. <laughs> it's time for five fantastic things to watch this weekend, courtesy of our friends at D23. For complete details, visit d23.com. First up, we have Ice Age, The Meltdown. It is new yes. to the Disney Plus library on July 23rd. And all I can just say is like, Scrat is like my, like after Hey Hey, Scrat is all about Scrat. <laughs> oh, I mean, we can't bump Hey Hey down from number one, first of no, all. So I'm I think glad we all to need that. to be clear. Well, up next, you can catch a new episode of the Mysterious Benedict Society on Disney Plus Friday, July 23rd, where Mr. Benedict reveals the truth about his past with Dr. Curtin and how he may be partly to blame for Curtin's misdeed. Love the show. Tony Hale is, as always, just a wonder and so fun to watch. Highly recommend this one for the weekend. Nice. And don't forget, he was on our pod. If you have not listened to him talk all about the show and Forky, of course. Yes, I feel like the more episodes we do, the more friends of the pod we mention every <laughs> every like blurb that we talk about. It's like friend of the pod, friend of the pod. That's true. They all so are friends. exciting. <laughs> Well, we're not friends with any sharks. We haven't had any sharks on the pod, but playing with sharks, that is coming to Disney Plus also on Friday. We've talked about this on the pod before. All about Valerie Taylor, living legend, icon in the underwater world. Check it out. Mm. Nice. And next, we just talked about this trailer drop, but the premiere is here already, and we must add it to your things to watch this weekend. Of course, you can stream the Disney Plus original documentary film, Stuntman also on July 23rd. Big day, Friday. Big day indeed. Well, we're going to round out the weekend on Saturday, but that's not the end of the weekend. You can do other things on Sunday. But on Saturday, July 24th at 10 a.m., there is a new episode of The Owl House, which, yeah, I'm sure Dylan will be watching oh, it. So love that show. Fun to watch. On to today's guest, who is a great friend of the podcast. She's the director of the Walt Disney Archives, and not only are she and her incredible team tasked with preserving the rich legacy of the Walt Disney Company, they have two incredible exhibits now touring the country, with more on the way. Please welcome to the show, Becky Klein. Hey, Becky. Hey. Yay! Welcome back, Ooh. Becky. Thank you so much. Becky, with this, I say you're neck and neck with like being our official fourth host along with Yvette Nicole Brown. I'm saying it's. <laughs> well, I'm honored. <laughs> you and I, we just got back from Memphis where you opened inside the Walt Disney Archives at the Graceland Exhibition Center. I loved that exhibit at the Bowers and it's amazing to see this incarnation of it. For, for people who haven't had a chance to see it, how would you describe the exhibit? It's kind of a love letter to the archives is what I would say. We have gotten questions for so many people over the last, you know, 
as long as I've been here, which is 35 years or so, you know, we've been getting questions about what, what do you do in the archives, you know, and so this was an opportunity for us to share a glimpse at what we do on a daily basis and the kind of collections we handle and, you know, what the objects that are in our collections, but it's more than just, you know, the fun things like costumes and props and art. It's also how we handle research and, and how we handle working with authors and inside the company, outside the company, how people come in and, and of course, how the archives got started. Amazing. We always joked on the podcast that the Bowers is Jeffrey's second home. <laughs> so when he says he loves it, he's not joking. No, it's I true. I think I went probably uh, five or six times during uh, <laughs> when the the world was shut down. When that finally, when that reopened. Yes. And it doesn't hurt that they have a great restaurant and a lovely courtyard and a great little shop. So oh, nice. you know, it'll keep so you bringing back. So keep going to the Bowers, even though the exhibit isn't there. <laughs> well, did you make changes to the exhibit for Graceland? We did actually. The exhibit began its life in Japan, actually. It was a piece that we worked on with the D Disney Japan team for their own D23 convention back there a few years back. And it was so popular that we decided to bring it to the United States. And that required that we retool it a bit and alter it so that it was relevant to an American US audience. And so we did make some changes before we put it into the Bowers. But then when we decided to take it to Graceland, we wanted to change it a little bit more and added in a few things that we were able to get done for that incarnation of it. So there's some parts of the exhibit that I think look a little bit more like the archives actually looks. We wanted to make it feel like you were walking through the exhibit and that you were walking into the Walt Disney Archives. So we were able to take what we did at the Bowers and then add a few more things to make you feel like you're really in an office space or you're really in the back room or you're really in you know, our storage facilities. And I think it benefited the exhibit to have it at Graceland too and to have the different space where we were able to make that happen. Plus we added a few things, little nods to Elvis here and there, which is appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> I know that we did add a few things. Can you talk about a couple of them? Yeah, with the very kind assistance of the uh, Walt Disney Animation Research Library, the Walt Disney Animation Studios, ARL, they call it the Animation Research Library. They keep all of the company's feature animation art in their care. And so we knew that there was a connection between Elvis, of course, and the film Lilo and Stitch. So we asked them if they would loan us some original artwork from the film that features Stitch dressed and imitating Elvis. And so we added three story sketches from that film to our exhibit. And then also there was a really cool background that was one of the images that looked like a postcard coming from Graceland with a visit by Stitch and his new family. So we added those pieces into our exhibit. And so they're prominent and lots of fun. Love them. And people can see them on d23.com. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we put a great little article about it and, and showcased the art. So if you can't get to the Memphis exhibit, please go to D23 and see what pieces we included. And if you can, of course, come and see them in person. And you just opened another exhibit, Heroes and Villains, an incredible costume yeah. exhibit that I actually got to write the story for, humble brag, for GoodMorningMarket.com. <laughs> Which was great. <laughs> the exhibit is at the Museum of Popular Culture in Seattle. And I have a few... Yeah favorites of my own, looking through all the amazing photos, but coming from you, please tell us about this exhibit. Well, you know, it's one of my favorites. At the last D23 Expo, we did an exhibit that was all about the art of Disney costume. And the emphasis on this was the design of Disney costumes. And so we featured, oh, I think there's over 85 costumes in the exhibit. And there's a Cinderella workshop that we call it, where we give the perspective 
of four different designers who designed the costume for the same character, which of course is Cinderella, because we've done four live action versions of Cinderella, as well as the classic animated film from 1950 that everyone knows and loves. But we, we had the take on this Cinderella workshop and these designers process and thinking and then showing the costume they each created for Cinderella. So that exhibit was hugely popular at the expo. And so we turned it into a traveling exhibition. And the first stop on the traveling tour for this particular exhibit, which we call Heroes and Villains, the Art of Disney Costume. And the first place was, as you said, in Mopop, Museum of Popular Culture in Seattle. And so it was really exciting to see it in place there. It looks a little different than it did at the expo, but I think they did an amazing job working with our curatorial staff to create a different look for it with the same costumes and a couple additions. We were able to add a couple of things that have come out since the D23 expo. Yes. The team knows I was lucky enough to be up there with you when it opened. And I mean, it's, I got to say one of the most fun parts of my job, getting to be (laughs) a part of these archives exhibits, the more and more we, I mean, starting all the way back with the exhibit that we opened at the Reagan library. And Mm -hmm. it's amazing how you guys have done this. And one of the things I really loved about this exhibit is the incredible detail that you get to see on the costumes that you wouldn't normally maybe see on screen, like the one from Tomorrowland, which we've talked Mm -hmm. about. Can you talk about some of your favorite design details, maybe even explain the one I was just referring to? Yeah, you know, that's what's really cool. And that's one of the reasons that we developed the exhibit to look the way it did, which is without cases. For the most part, the pieces are not in cases. So you can, except for a velvet rope, you can get up close and actually see in person the details. And What amazes me the most about these costumes, especially currently in more recent films, is that because of high def television and the ability to see things close up on screen, just by yourself in your living room, they have to be a lot more detailed with the actual costumes. And so some of the newer creations are amazing to look at close up. For example, the one you mentioned, Jeffrey, was the Tomorrowland costume. Well, the character that wears that costume is an android, and you find that out in the film. But her costume, it, it looks like a little peplum, little dress with a little skirt. And it's just, it's kind of cute, kind of plain Peter Pan collar, that kind of thing. But when you look closely at it, you can see that the fabric was specially made for that costume. It has kind of a shiny tint to give it more of a kind of a plasticky, metallic-y feeling to give you the impression that she's not human. But also the very subtle design element in the the fabric itself, it looks like just lines, like it's kind of graphic, but the lines are actually made up of long strings of code. And you can only see that up close. In the film, you don't really see that, but the actor knows that they're wearing that. And the actors that are acting opposite that character see that. And, you know, it helps kind of subliminally help the actor to know that, you know, that this character is an android. And it's really fascinating that the designers now go to such lengths to help the person wearing the costume to get into character. There's also, you know, in period costumes, we have to be really kind of cognizant of how detailed it's going to look on screen. So, for example, there's two costumes in there from the character of Mary Poppins, one from the original film, which came out in 1964, and the other one from the recent Mary Poppins Returns, worn by Emily Blunt. And so we show both of those costumes. Well, they take place in different eras. The Julie Andrews costume is from Edwardian England around circa 1910 or so. And the Mary Poppins Returns costume is from the 30s. So the styling is a bit different, but they use the basic same color palette. But if you look closely at them side by side, you'll see that the Julie Andrews costume is very simple. There's not a lot of patterns in the fabric. It's a very simple, basic 
costume like you might see on the stage today. But the one that Emily Blunt wore is much more detailed and richer in fabric and detailing and things like that. And the reason being that it's seen in so much more detail when you're watching the films. Wow, that is incredible. Okay, so you've got two exhibits running right now, Heroes and Villains and Inside the Walt Disney Archives. How long are each of these running? Well, Graceland will be open through January 2nd. It's staying open through the holidays. That's the main thing there. And then Mopop will be closing on April 17th. So you've got plenty of time to see them if you want to go up there. And I highly recommend both of them if you get the opportunity. And I love that we were literally bringing the Walt Disney Archives to the people. This is like the coolest thing that we do. And it's Mm -hmm. really neat to see what's next, I have to ask you. And are there any other exhibits coming up that we need to know about? Oh my goodness. (laughs) Well, that is a huge question. And yes, indeed, we have a lot more exhibits scheduled to open and things that we've announced already and things that we haven't. So you'll have to stay tuned to hear. But the biggest one, of course, is in 2023, the Walt Disney Company will be celebrating its 100th anniversary. Uh, So there'll be all kinds of amazing activations and fun stuff celebrating that milestone. We've been asked and we're in the process of developing a 100th anniversary exhibit. And we're very, very excited. It's a huge challenge because how do you distill a hundred years of Disney, which is a massive task into, you know, a 12,000 square foot exhibit that you can walk through. We are uh, deep into the creative now and have been working on it for almost a year now. It's going to be, I think, something pretty special and we're really excited about it. It's going to open, I think, February of 2023. You'll hear a lot more soon. So watch d23.com because we'll be making announcements and, and things kind of from now until, you know, next year. And of course, <laughs> I'm guessing that there'll be something about this at the D23 Expo next summer. So if you want to know everything about the 100th anniversary, I would highly recommend putting that on your calendar. Details for that are on D23.com. And then the other major exhibit that we have going that we always do an exhibition at the Destination D23, which is going to be in November this year. And there are tickets available. So if you want to come see that one, we will, of course, have a really fun exhibit that will highlight at least one aspect of the Walt Disney World 50th anniversary, which is going on right now. And we hear you just got a shipment of assets from a galaxy far, far away. Tell us everything. Yes. It came from that galaxy by way of London, and we recently received multiple shipping containers full of really amazing assets from that galaxy, which is the Star Wars universe. Lucasfilm, who's been holding these assets in London in a, in a warehouse for quite a while since they started creating these films with Disney, they've held the assets there and they felt it was time to turn it over to the archives now. And so all of those assets that were previously being held in a very secret warehouse near London have now come to a very secret warehouse in Southern California. There are items in there that are pretty amazing. Something as huge as Luke's X-Wing fighter, the big one. We actually had to bring it in with a crane. And so we have Luke's X-Wing. We've got BB-8 and R2-D2 and characters like that. We also, of course, have lots of costumes and handheld props. So, you know, blasters and lightsabers and anything else in between. And we're pretty excited because these assets are all from the most recent films that Disney and Lucas put together in the Skywalker trilogy, the three films. And then, of course, the one-offs like Rogue One and Solo. So we're pretty excited about diving into those boxes and seeing what there is and having the fun of cataloging them and and sharing them with everybody. That is so cool. 
my eyeballs are literally bulging out of my face <laughs> still thinking about this particular exhibit. Oh my goodness. Well, I feel like a lot of people out there, namely myself, don't totally know how the archives does its job. And I've been wanting to ask you this all the times we've talked to you. So finally I get to now. Let's use these Star Wars pieces, for example. When do you get to see them? Do you get the first crack? How do you get them? How do they get here? Where are they stored? How many pairs of white gloves do you have? <laughs> I have a lot of questions. <laughs> okay. Um, well, using Star Wars as an example, that's a good place to start. The way we acquire assets is usually through a, what we call an asset transfer. Another division of the company will have these assets that they don't need to use anymore. They're not needed for their business purposes, but they're historical and they want to be preserved. And of course, they're things that fans will want to see. So whenever something is not needed anymore by the division that created it, they reach out to us and say, hey, we have this and we'd like to put it in the archives permanently. And at that point, then we go through and discuss with them, you know, what is involved, which pieces we need, what things they want us to keep. And we create a list and then they arrange to get it to us. Sometimes we go pick it up if it's local. Sometimes it gets delivered here. Sometimes it gets shipped from, you know, other continents or off of production, things like that. And it comes into the archives. And then at that point, sometimes it's in greatly organized fashion and labeled and ready to just put on a rack and put in a computer. But often it comes in kind of haphazardly because it comes off directly off production and they may not have the time to organize it and you know hang it nicely and put it in the bag. So in many cases, when it comes in, we have to you know physically go through everything, organize it, hang it on hangers, put it in bags, put it in acid-free boxes you know, rehouse things. It's a huge project and it takes a lot of time and energy. And of course, we have to be really careful with the assets because we want to make sure that they're preserved as you know best as possible. And so we do all of that whenever a new collection comes in. Then we put it into our computer system. We take photographs of it and identify, you know, who it came from, what, you know, scenes it was used in. Sometimes we pull reference photos from our photo library to show picture of this costume being worn in the film, for example, so that down the road <laughs> when we do an exhibit, we've got reference already selected so that we can share it and say, here's the costume and here's the actor that wore it and things like that. And so there's a lot of work that gets done. Even when it comes to the loading dock, we have to process it. And that's a big challenge. And it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of manpower, but it's fun. You know, it's fun, but it is hard work. And so that's the first thing that gets done. And then it gets cataloged and then we use it. You know, we know in advance what films are coming up. So we make wish lists. So when, you know, when I found out they were doing Cruella, you know, we, wrote down all the things that we definitely knew we wanted and we share that with the team that handles the wrapping the films and handling the, the disposition of the assets and so we actually have a, a conversation with them on every big upcoming film or television series or park attraction that's closing or being reimagined and we make a list and say these are the things that we think are historically important and we would like these things plus anything that you want to add to it and that list is a is kind of a wish list. We sometimes get to watch the films and and um, television shows in advance so that we know what's coming and can make that ask. But it's gotten into a groove now. We've been doing this for oh, gosh, fifteen years. This process, and so now we're we know you know the people that we work with know what we're going to want and we know what we want and it becomes just a very smooth thing. So every time a, a park attraction changes and every time a film opens or a television series wraps, you know, they reach out to us and say, okay, this is what we're going to send. Is there anything else you want? And, and then we arrange to get it. 
And that's how we work in dimensional assets. But there are other things. We get samples of every single book published by the company. We get samples of every audio disc, anything. We, we don't get so many anymore of the you know, DVDs and things like that because things are streaming. But we get samples of merchandise and pieces like that to put in our collection. Plus, you know, as people retire or leave the company, they'll turn over their document files to us. We get, you know, every comic book published by the company. We get, you know, all these things. And so stuff comes through that door every single day and has to be processed and carefully cataloged and put away so that we can share it down the road with either researchers, internal and external, or by doing exhibits and sharing these things with the public, which we love doing. I just want to add one thing to that because one thing that I don't know that everyone knows, and Becky, you and your team deserve a huge amount of credit for is something you just mentioned at the very end there where it is because you keep these classic assets that mm-hmm. they serve as this great inspiration and resource for the storytellers of today and tomorrow. I mean, I think about Kevin Feige telling us, not us on the podcast, although he was here and is fabulous, going into the archives to look at things. Or I remember when Eddie Kitsis and Adam Horowitz would come to you guys and talk because of things that they were researching for once upon a time. If you guys weren't already doing that great cataloging, their storytelling would not be as amazing as it is. And now you have those items in there so that tomorrow's storytellers can do that. It's this great, uh, I mean, not to be too Disney, but it is a great circle of life piece there. <laughs> it is. It's really wonderful. We, that's one of the things that we particularly enjoy. We work with these amazing authors, both inside and outside the company and Disney publishing and folks like that who look at our original source material. But then it's so fun for us to be able to pull out these assets and share it with these filmmakers who are Eight, some of them are doing documentaries. Some of them are actually using them as inspiration in their creative. So for example, if you watch the film, Mary Poppins Returns, when you watch the opening credits, you see original you know, concept art or visual development art from the original 1964 film. And it's in the credits at the beginning, but it's interspersed with the same style or same kind of visual development art by a new artist. And so it's a mixture of the old art that we have in our collections and the new art that they created for the film. That is so exciting for us to be able to pull out this amazing art from, you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago and share it with these filmmakers and just see how they get inspired and then have a little, you know, a little touch in these wonderful new projects that they're doing. And so whether it's for, you know, a television show or, pulling out a costume to let the new designer look at it and see what was done in an earlier film or, you know, just actually sometimes we have costumes and things for, you know, we have the the actual designer of the costume will come in sometimes just to refresh their memory so that they can make a new one or they can make a new character or, and sometimes, you know, repeat the same costume. If they decide to do a sequel later on, they may want to see something from the original film. So prop makers and designers come in as well. You know, it's really fascinating hearing you talk about acquiring assets in general, this workflow that you've developed. But I imagine over the last year and a half, specifically, (laughs) your team had to adapt a little bit on how you archive assets. So I would love to hear what that was like for you and your team. Yeah. Yeah, running an archive during COVID was, you know, quite the feat, I have to to say. What we do, like I said, we get things every day. And so God bless the, you know, warehouse team and the, the mailroom here at the Disney Studios because they fielded a lot of packages for us and stored them for us and then brought them to us when we were able to come back in the office and retrieve them. But I think the first person from our team who actually got to come back and work physically was the acquisitions manager, Rick Lorenz. He actually had to kind of 
go to our warehouse in multiple masks and gloves and things and receive, you know, these things because, you know, the work has to keep moving. And when these assets come in in these huge trucks, somebody has to be there to oversee unloading it on the dock and putting it somewhere so that there's room for the next, you know, load to come in. So we did do some receiving at that time, but it was tricky. And then, of course, trying to help researchers and, and help answer questions. We're very fortunate that those of us who in the, on the team who are you know, research and historians and archivists, we are all really blessed to have great libraries at home. Over the years, we've, we love Disney books. So we get samples of them and we take them and we get you know, signed copies of our own from the authors sometimes. So we all have really great libraries at home. So we've been able to use those. And then we took some things home as reference. We were able to keep going. It slowed down. We weren't as quick as we usually are in answering questions, but we did what we could. And then we'd come in once in a while to check on the facilities and do some, you know, scanning and things like that to support each other. That was tough. But one thing that was really interesting is that we actually had just been on the beginning phases of a new collections management system, a new computer system that is going to help us keep inventories and keep track of everything and cataloging. And we knew it was going to be a huge project, a lot of data you know, that's been existing for many, many years needs to be cleaned up and organized so they can go into this system. And that was a big, big project that we had ahead of us that we knew was going to take a lot of manpower. And, you know, when the pandemic hit, we weren't able to work inside our offices for over a year. And so we decided to take that time for the staff to work on this collections management system. And since it's a, a program that we're all going to be using, we were all involved in, in developing that anyway. And so we spent a lot of our time while at home, you know, cleaning up data. There's a, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of lines of data that were in our computer systems, but hadn't been organized exactly the same way over the years. And so organizing and cleaning that up was a huge task that we didn't know how we were going to accomplish. And then, you know, then we had the opportunity to pull people off of some of their regular tasks and put them onto working on that system. And it benefits the archives in a huge way and will definitely benefit our collections down the road. So Disneyland just celebrated its 66th anniversary and Walt Disney World is about to celebrate its 50th. What are the coolest, most surprising items you have in the archives collection <laughs> from those resorts? Oh my goodness. Um, getting items from the parks is so interesting because they're so beloved. There's pieces that seeing them up close and in person at the parks is one thing when you're riding on an attraction or going through a dark ride, you know, and seeing these things, but then getting the opportunity to handle and see them up close is pretty special. You know, when Mickey's Runaway Railway uh, attraction opened, we reimagined that. And so the things that were in that great movie ride needed to get a new home. And so we were really fortunate to be able to take some of those assets and bring them into the archives. And so there's everything from really scary things like the alien <laughs> to really fun things from, you know, uh, some of the audio animatronic figures and some of the props and costumes from those films that were in that great movie ride. Those are pretty fun from Walt Disney World. And of course, from Disneyland, you know, we get figures of you know, when they reimagined Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, some of those assets came to us that, that were no longer in the attraction. And so those are special star tours. When it was reimagined, you know, we, we got Captain Rex. He came to the archives and lives here with us now. And, you know, the, those are some of the really, you know, interesting things. But we get other things. There's a Wurlitzer organ that was recently turned over to us. It was off the dock of the Mark Twain. It was something that had been in storage for a while. When they reimagined that area a few years ago, that was removed. And it's kind of a combination organ 
player player organ, I guess you would call it. And that recently came to the archives. So we're pretty excited about getting those things and, and always trying to come up with an opportunity to share them. I'm going to say that my personal favorite, maybe Oscar from Country Bears. Oh. He's so cute. He is so adorable. I just am trying to figure out a way without damaging to make him squeak. You know, he's got the little teddy bear on his lap. I'd love yes. to find it. Maybe I'll set up a little speaker behind it or something and occasionally make him squeak. <laughs> yes, please. I'm, I am all there for that. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> so Becky, given the richness and really the expansiveness of Disney in general, I'm just continually in awe of the archives team. Is there one item though that comes to mind that the archives were able to procure that you never thought you'd be able to find? Well, yeah, I'll tell you, there's one piece that we found that I'm really excited about and I never thought I'd see it, which was the Mary Poppins carpet bag. We were able mm. to, to get that at auction a few years ago. And that's a piece that, you know, I knew they were out there. I knew there was a couple of them actually out there, but I'd never seen one. And you know, the, the assets from Mary Poppins are near and dear to my heart. And they're something that I'm always keeping an eye out for because they were scattered to the winds, you know, years ago. And so I always watch out for those kind of things. But the one piece that I would love to find then in that note is Mary Poppins umbrella because we don't have the parrot head umbrella from the original film and I don't know who does I don't know where it is out there the carpet bag was just found by a family it was given away as a sweepstakes with full of cash we have the documentation about that we know that it was done it was given away well apparently the family who got it wanted the cash they didn't care so much about the carpet bag so they stuck it in the attic and oh someone found it somebody realized what it was and put it up for auction so we were able to acquire it for the company but you know, I don't know where the parrot head umbrella went and I'm sure there's at least one out there. So anybody listening to this, if you know where the umbrella head is, please, or, or the umbrella itself, please let me yes. know. It's a worldwide <laughs> scavenger hunt. <laughs> and there are a few other costumes from Mary Poppins that I would love to acquire too. So anything from that film that is original and we can at least find out about, because that's a, an important point about the archives is that we don't have to own everything, but we would really love to know where things are because usually people are very generous with these sort of things. They own it in their own personal collection for some reason. If we know they have it, we can make an arrangement to borrow it and share it at one of our exhibits and we'll give credit to that person for loaning it. And then it goes back to them. It's their possession, not ours. And I'm not out there trying to police you know, assets and find out where everything is so I can take it or demand it back. It's not like that. You know, things got out in various ways, you know, especially in the early years when, you know, when, when a film wrapped, you know, they didn't really care what happened to the assets because they weren't using them again. And they got out there, people took them home from off the set or they were given as gifts or something like that. And so I know there's really important historical assets out there and I just love to know where they are so that we can, you know, we can maybe borrow them occasionally for a special exhibit or something. Jeffrey, it's safe to admit that you have the umbrella. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I do want to say that, Becky, you, you touched on this, and it's something that we talk about when we give tours to D23 members and, and guests on the studio lot. When people got rid of costumes or props you know, pre-archives, it wasn't because they were being dismissive of those things. It was people didn't realize or have that awareness of how valuable those would be. There wasn't, you know, there wasn't a, a Dave Smith or a, an archivist with the vision to say down the road, these are going to be important to the company. Back then they were a means to an end. The product right. was the film or the attraction or the television show. It wasn't mm -hmm. 
like, oh, and now we're going to take these and store them for, for the precious treasures they are. It was something that we've, you know, we've learned. And I think the archives obviously has done a masterful job of yeah. finding those pre-1970 items and really putting together this yeah. fabulous collection. I don't mean to, to <laughs> brag all over you, Becky, but you're, oh. you know, you guys do oh. awesome work. Thank you. This is a podcast. You don't see me blushing, but thank you. <laughs> to add to that, it's really interesting. People don't realize that when there was a studio system, when things were done in-house, you had your wardrobe department, you had your prop department. And when things were made for film, they were if they could be reused, they would just be put back into circulation. And then the studio would use maybe a pair of, you know, literally we have a pair of shoes that Mary Poppins wore in that film. And then they were painted white and used in The Happiest Millionaire by Leslie Ann Warren. We have those now, they're boots, but they're now white instead of purple. And it's kind of interesting when we go through, you know, the holdings, production is a lot different now. Things are not made in-house, they're made by a production company and then turned over to us. But back in the old days, they were either made here at the studio or they would hire a place like Western Costume here in Los Angeles that they would do this, what they call build for hire, which means that Western costume would build and create the costumes and then they would keep them and put them into their own warehouses so that they could rent them out afterwards. All of Hollywood did that. Things were built for hire all the time. And pre-1970, before there was an archives, you know, that was just the process. They would get, you know, returned to, to Western costume. And then who knows where they went from there. They could get sold off. They could get rented out and not returned or whatever. And many times they still have the name tags inside of who wore the costume. And so if somebody, you know, put on a jacket and saw David Tomlinson's name in it, they're going to say, wow, I'm going to keep this. And then years later, auction it off for some great amount of money. But, you know, it happens. And the thing was, is back then, like you said, Jeffrey, it was a means to an end. It was something that there wasn't a big collectible. People didn't collect these things as assets. And now they do. It's just a different cultural thing. And so the company didn't keep things from you know those original films or they would make it on location a film would be made in England or made overseas and they didn't want to spend the money to send it back here to the United States to stick in a warehouse so they would just give it away or donate it or you know let a costume company take it so a lot of our early films pre-1970 just kind of scattered to the winds we're lucky we have the Mary Poppins traveling costume and the pieces that we do because because that was actually saved by the wardrobe department they knew how special it was so they kept it and then when the archives was founded in 1970 they gave it to Dave so we had you know one rack of kind of iconic costumes when Dave started the archives that included really amazing things like Annette Funicello's Mouseketeer costume and Davy Crockett's cap and and you know Zorro's costume things like that were, were saved by the wardrobe department because they knew how special they were but then when we actually started our archives they turned over those pieces to us. Wow wow that's amazing. So when you were on our show for the first time, which was episode nine, for those of you who want to hear <laughs> Becky talk about the Disneyland TV show and more, check it out. Episode nine. We were so young then. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So when you were on the show, then you said your favorite Disney memory was going back into Walt's restored office. But since we asked this question to every guest, do you have a second favorite Disney memory? That one seems hard. I mean, it seems hard to beat, but if you have a new first, you could also give us your new, new favorite Disney memory. Hard to top. I think probably when I think back, one of the huge moments in my career and one of the biggest and fondest memories I actually have was the opening day of the D23 Expo in 2009. Just, we worked for years to get that going and 
actually standing there and watching the fans and members come in through that front door and realizing that it, it was real. It was reality. We actually had made it happen. And that to me was pretty special. Just, you know, being there and walking around the show floor and talking to people who were so excited that we had done that. And I just can't tell you how exciting it was and how happy I was that I'd been part of that team to make D23 start and to make the expo happen. It was, and of course, the first issue of 23 magazine, Disney 23 magazine, the first issue I got to write for and help produce that issue. And every time I see it, I get such a thrill because it was a major milestone in my career and something that I think about every time we have a major Disney D23 event, I get very excited about it. And especially now that it's been going on for so long, it's an institution now and it's huge. And, you know, thinking about, you know, those initial meetings on deciding if we're going to try to do this to what it is today is pretty exciting. Agree. And I was privileged enough to come in during the, that planning process and be mm-hmm. there with you on that yeah. first expo. It's crazy. It had to think all the, how it's grown and, and how magnificent it is. Um, the archives as well. I mean, that was the first time the archives really had done such a an exhibit like that. And oh, yeah. to have people walk through, it was like all of this work and people going, well, if you build it, they will come. They, <laughs> oh, they, they came in droves and they loved they it. And it's just, I just love getting to work with you they on did. all of that stuff. So thank you. Congratulations. Two exhibits, more to come. Yeah. Cannot wait. And can't wait for you to find the umbrella. This podcast will be the the impetus. I literally, <laughs> literally was going to say for anyone listening, give up the umbrella. Yes. Give it to us. We'll have to make t-shirts oh so that everybody can wear. It says, where is the umbrella? We'll launch a GMA <laughs> investigates everything. Love it. We're on it. <laughs> Writers of the Lost Archives. Oh, yes. there we go. <laughs> I appreciate the help. <laughs> There's so much I didn't know. It's so fascinating having to do all the work there at the archives. And I have to reiterate to everyone listening, if you do know the whereabouts of the parrot umbrella, we just want to know where it is. We will keep you safe, (laughs) but please come forward. (laughs) That's all. This has been a PSA. Well, thanks again for listening to D23 Inside Disney. Don't forget to like and share this episode wherever you listen or subscribe. And if you want to chat with us, hashtag D23 Inside Disney. And for all the latest Disney info, check out d23.com. We'll be back next week with more Disney news and a fantastic guest on an all-new episode of D23 Inside Inside Disney. Disney.